welcome to this week's sermon from C3 Church Narara. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net. Thank you so much, uh, Chris. It is wonderful to be with you, and the Browns have been so uh, welcoming already. And it is wonderful to be here with you today. Uh, I want to say, first of all, uh, this, uh, Chris mentioned her already, but if I don't mention her, then I've got to still live with her. So, no, that's, that's, that's not fair at all. It's still Valentine's Day at home, so I have to treat her like my Valentine. This is my Valentine, Shelly, back here. So I say hi to Shelly. Truly an honor to be with you today. I love that there are so many different churches from so many different backgrounds getting together. Did I hear someone's here from Salvation Army? Okay, I got to show you the picture I've got on my phone of my maternal grandmother as a teenager with her Salvation Army uniform on. Yeah, it is, it is one of our church, one of our family treasures. And uh, we're not Salvation Army for a while, but boy, that was, that's a big part of our heritage as well. So it's wonderful to have you here. Wonderful to have everybody here. We're going to jump right into it because we've got four sessions for you today. And here's kind of how we're going to lay it out. Uh, the first session will be the longest session by far because you've got the greatest amount of tension span, uh, attention span, hopefully not tension span. Uh, your, your greatest attention span is right now, so I'm going to take advantage of that. But every session as we go through will get slightly shorter, especially after lunch. Those will be slightly, those will be shorter sessions, and they will get more practical as the day goes on, as our attention span wanes, and as just simply note-taking becomes more important part of it. Just to give you an idea of how the day is going to go, uh, the second session is going to be big churches, small churches, what's the difference? The third session, first one after lunch, is going to be how to discover and use what your church does well. Your church does something well. How do you know what it is and how do you use that? And then the, the final session will be finding and mentoring volunteers. How many of you have enough volunteers in your church and you don't need any more? I've never had a single hand raised for that. So our last session will be finding and mentoring volunteers in today's and a peek into tomorrow's church. But we're going to begin with session one. We're going to be calling it Redefining Success in ministry. So let me begin this way. Hi, I'm Carl, and I'm a small church pastor. Yeah. Uh, when I say I, I, I'm a small church pastor, I've been a small church pastor for over, th for over 30 years, but I didn't know I was a small church pastor until about 10 years ago. So how can you be a small church pastor for over 20 years and not know it? Well, you see, I thought I was a big church pastor that just hadn't arrived yet. Any minute now, I know it's a small now, but it's inevitable any minute because because I'm praying and I'm working and I'm reading and I'm studying and everybody says if you do all these steps, then big happens. Yeah. And after 20 years of doing all of that and it not occurring, it uh, I had to redefine my my idea of success in ministry. So I want to walk you through a little bit of that story. But first, when I say I'm a small church pastor, let's define some of our terms because that is a nebulous term. Small church, what does it mean? Well, first of all, when I say small church, what do I mean by that? There are two very distinct types of small churches. There's the church of 50, give or take 50. And there's the church of 150, give or take 50. And those are two very distinct types of small churches. If you're in a church of 50, give or take 50, 
You look at a church of 150, give or take 50, and you think, how can that even be called a small church? That may be bigger than the biggest church in your town. I understand that. Because when we're talking small or large, although those are comparative terms, we're not really using them comparatively. We're using them to describe the way leadership functions in different sized churches. So that's what we'll really be talking about. So even though a church of 50, give or take 50, is a very different type of church than a church of 150, give or take 50, uh, there's far more in common. A, a, a pastor of a church of 20 and a pastor of a church of 200 will have far more in common in the way they lead their church than the pastor of a church of 200 will have with the pastor of a church of 500. So even though 20 to 200 is 10 times difference, and 200 to 500 is only two and a half times difference, the similarities in the way leadership functions in a church of 20 and a church of 200 are more similar than the way leadership functions in a church of 200 to 500. There's a big shift that happens. They call it the 200 barrier, which is a term I don't like because it implies that you must go through it. And we'll talk about why that isn't necessarily so. But um, there is a big shift that happens there. So when I say small church, I realize that I'm talking about two very different types of things. But what we'll try to talk about today is things that all those smaller churches, so if you're under 200, it will, you, you will have all of those things in common. Secondly, when I say I'm a small church pastor, what do I mean by that? Well, Shelley and I have served three different churches in our, in our ministry together. The first church that we served was a small little chapel in the redwoods of California. California has the biggest trees on earth, literally. They're all up and down the coast, the redwoods, the sequoias. And our first church was a tiny little chapel in the redwoods. And um, it, it was so deep into the woods that if you drove into our parking lot at noon on a sunny California day, your automatic headlights would go on. So that's how deep under the woods it was. So we were there for just over four years, and the Lord really blessed us, and I think used us to bless them. We then went to another church in the northern part of the San Francisco Bay Area, and we had the longest 20 months of our ministry. We'll just leave it there. Uh, we left there to our third pastorate, and almost didn't almost left pastoring entirely at that point. That. 20 months can do an awful lot to you if it's, if it's a place like that and, and a challenge like that. We then left as a bruised and bleeding pastor and family and went to a church in Orange County, California, just eight miles south of Disneyland. They had been through five pastors in the previous 10 years. And with an average of six to nine months between pastor, it was an average of about 18 months per pastor. I told them when I arrived, you haven't been pastored for 10 years. You've had a series of extended guest speakers. And that was really true. They just had, had had no leadership. They had almost taken a vote to close the church, and they decided, let's give one last shot. Let's bring one more pastor in, and that was me. So I came into the congregation. Our main room is smaller than this room, but it's sideways. Uh, so if you come on Sunday morning and want to sit in the back row of our church, there will only be four rows in front of you. And that's on the day we need to put out the fifth row, uh, which isn't necessarily every Sunday. But I came into that church, even though we were hurting and even though that church had been hurting for a long time, we were in the middle of Orange County, California, eight miles south of Disneyland. It's a place where big things happen. We're less than a half hour drive from Saddleback Church. We're only about a five minute drive from the original Calvary Chapel, not farther than that from Crystal Cathedral, from the original Vineyard Church. Go just over the border and you have Church on the Way and Angelus Temple, Fuller Church Growth Institute. For those from a Pentecostal background, Azusa Street is a 45-minute drive from my front door. So I live in a place not just where big things happen, but where big movements begin. And so we thought, well, us next. 
There's a lot of people around. There's no excuse to say small. And we showed up in this church that had a dozen people on an average Sunday, 30 people on a big Sunday. And we started working. But we were hurting, and they were hurting. So for the first six or seven years, about all we did was have worship services and potluck fellowships. We just worshiped and ate. That wasn't a plan. That was just basically about all, all any of us had the energy for. Uh, this was an old and tired congregation, and I was a young but tired pastor. And uh, so we just hugged Jesus and hugged each other for about six or seven years. That's all we had the capacity for. I'm not recommending that. I'm just telling you what we did. And I remember very distinctly at about seven years in, I was, it was, I was done with a Thursday at work, and it had been another good day in the office. And I sat in my car, and I looked ahead at the church building, and all of a sudden it overwhelmed me. I went, that's a healthy church. I'm looking at a healthy church. And because I was sitting in, in my car, I had this image hit me. I feel like I've been under the hood of this church for seven years trying to get the engine running. It's finally running. It's finally ready to go. I'm now sitting in the driver's seat, and I have no idea where to take it. What do you do with a healthy church? I hadn't pastored one in a decade, and they hadn't been one for two decades. This was unfamiliar territory to us. What do you do with a healthy church? So I actually brought that concern to our church leadership, and I said, we're healthy. And they went, oh, yeah, how'd that happen? What do we do now when we decided let's share that blessing with others? And so that was when we started doing outreach. At that point, we were running about 75 people on a Sunday morning. And over the next seven years or so, we started reaching out to the community, and it started growing. And at about year 15, we were running around 200 people, which filled our sanctuary twice and which more than overwhelmed our very minimal parking. And we were parking around the corner. At that point, we realized, at that point, we, realized we needed to get a little bigger. Actually, at that point, that was when all the church growth conference people started to call me and said, hey, Carl, we want you to come and teach us how to take a church from 30 to 200 in just 15 years. Not everybody gets that joke. I'm glad you did. Uh, you don't get those calls. That takes. If, if you're in the room today for quick fixes and fast answers, you're in the wrong room. As soon as the session is over, you can make a graceful exit and go somewhere else. Uh, Abraham Lincoln said, I may move slowly, but I never move backwards. And that's kind of been my philosophy of life and ministry. I may move slowly, but I ain't moving backwards. I, I, I can keep on going. And so we just continued to go. So at 15 years, we were running about 200. We overwhelmed our little building. So I had to find a bigger space for us to worship on Sunday morning. So I went around, and what I found was the local junior high school, and they had these all-purpose rooms in the U.S. I don't know if they have them here. I call it the Cafe Gym Natura Librarium. It's everything from the cafeteria to the library to the gym to the auditorium. And it's about, it was about four times the size of this room, so quite large for us. And we started worshiping there just on Sunday mornings in our main uh, church for the rest of the week. And in the next, tw uh, next two years, we grew from 200 to 400 on a Sunday morning. So we doubled 200 to 400 in less than two years. At that point, I actually went to our deacon board and I said, we are, we are he heading on the fast track towards 600. They could see the graph going up as well. And I said, we need to hire staff for a church of 600 because we'll be there in a couple of years and we need to hire ahead of that growth. They saw that as inevitable. So we went out and at, 200, and at 400, we hired a staff for 600. A couple, a couple months went by, it held about steady. And then all of a sudden, everything started going in reverse. And while it took us just two years, less than two years, to go from 200 to 400, in less than a year, we went from 400 down to, actually, I can't tell you how small we got, because 
It's fun to count when you're growing. <sighs> but when you're dropping that fast, it's like, you know what? When the, when the house is on fire, don't tell me the temperature of the flames. Just get me a hose. Right? I don't need the details. I, I told them, quit giving me numbers. I know everybody's name. Uh, but the good news was uh, we didn't have to rent that, um, that, that room in the junior high anymore. We fit back in our small church real well. So I fixed that problem. Uh, so we fit very easily back in the room. We, we were under 100 every Sunday, and we had some Sundays under 50. And less than a year before, we were at 400. And there had been no scandal, and there had been no split. And I didn't know what had gone wrong. And I asked around. We did exit interviews. We were asking questions everywhere, and nobody could tell us what was going on. The people who were leaving weren't mad at us. They didn't know why they were leaving either. Nobody had answers. And I was left frustrated, confused, and then I got angry. I got angry at myself. I got angry at the church. I got angry at God. And I found myself in a really, really bad place. So I went and I found a local counselor who had actually been a pastor himself for 20 years, and I sat down in the counselor's office. So confession number one this morning is, hi, I'm Carl, and I'm a small church pastor. Confession number two is, hi, I'm Carl, and I've been to therapy. <laughs> and pastoring put me there. <laughs> and I sat down with this counselor, and I started just laying my heart out to him. And after about two sessions, I basically looked at him and said, okay, what's going on? What what do I need to do here? And he said these words. He said, Carl, sounds to me like you need to figure out how to redefine success in ministry. And I wanted to punch him in the nose. I said, so you're telling me I've been trying to jump a 10-foot bar, but I'm only jumping eight feet, so let's lower the bar to eight feet, jump over that, and call it success? That's not success. That's cheating. He said, that's not what I'm talking about. He said, Carl, if, success is, if, if uh, the bar is over here, success is over here. If, if increased attendance is over here, success in ministry is over here. And then he said a sentence that changed my life. You have to figure out how to define success in ministry without numbers attached to it. And I had no idea what he meant. And I told him that. I said, I don't even know what that means. He says, yeah, I don't either. <laughs> but that's what we have to figure out together. And I'm committed to help you figuring that out. And from that point on, I've been on this journey, trying to figure out what does it mean to have success in ministry without attaching numbers to it. So how did I end up in this situation where I was burnt out, just about flamed out, all these kinds of problems, not knowing what was going on? I, well, before, actually, before I get to that, let me tell you how to follow along today. Uh, all of the notes for all four sessions today. So if you see something on a screen, it will be at this website. My current website, and I say current because we're about to change it, I'll tell you about that in a moment, newsmallchurch.com backslash Narara, so where you are here. So at any time now, 10 years from now, there's no reason for me to ever take it down, you can go and you can see these notes. So all the notes, everything you see on the screen will be on there. You can go there right now and check it out for yourself. The wonderful advantage of putting the notes online uh, rather than uh, on paper is one, I don't have to carry all that paper around with me wherever I go. But secondly, it helps you because about a good half to one to two thirds of the notes there have clickable links where you can click a link and you can go to an article that I wrote about that subject and get more information at any time you want. So uh, it, it gives you that information and gives you more information to go on. So, and that will be on the bottom of pretty much every screen from now on. If you, so if we get halfway through and you go, oh, that's a good point. I need to remember that. Uh, you'll see the website. You can go and you can find it there. 
So how did I end up in this situation? Almost burned out in ministry in, in this particular thing. It was because I believe something that I have since come to call the grasshopper myth. And I named my book The Grasshopper Myth, and I came up with the phrase The Grasshopper Myth. And the definition of it is, is this. The grasshopper myth is the false impression that our small church ministry is less than what God says it is because we compare ourselves with others. Uh, what's the toxic word in that sentence? We all know it, don't we? And yet we do it. We all know how dangerous that is, and yet we can't help ourselves from doing it. We compare ourselves with each other, and it's not good. Either if we, if we compare ourselves with others, either we will be bigger than others and be filled with pride, or smaller than others and be filled with shame, and neither pride nor shame are a good way to build a healthy church. Comparison will kill. That's what was happening with me. I get the phrase, the grasshopper myth, from the Bible, so relax, it's not some crazy California idea. From the Bible, the book of Numbers, the 12 spies go into the land, and 10 of them come back with a report that includes this phrase. All the people we saw there are of great size. One translation says there were giants in the land. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Where did they seem like grasshoppers first? If you don't see a grasshopper in your mirror, no one else will see a grasshopper in you. In our own eyes first, and then to them. Eleanor Roosevelt is credited with saying, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. And what happened to me was, I gave consent to the giant churches around me to make me feel bad, but that was not their intention. Rick Warren did not write Purpose Driven Church to make me feel bad. I thought it was for a while, and I blamed him for a while, and he didn't do anything wrong. I, that's not why he did that. I saw a grasshopper in my mirror, and therefore I could not celebrate the success of the larger churches around me. I could only feel jealous of them. And that wasn't good for anybody, especially me. So I had to redefine success in ministry. I had to stop seeing the, the grasshopper in my mirror, and I started this quest. So let me walk you through some of the first things that I discovered when I started looking at redefining success in ministry. First of all, I discovered there are three undeniable realities of church ministry. Reality number one is this. 80 to 90% of churches will never be larger than 250 people. How do we know that? Because the best predictor of future events is past events. And for 2,000 years and counting, that has been the case. The history of the church is the history of small groups of people multiplying like crazy all over the face of the globe. That is the primary history of the church. That is not the primary history we read, but that is the primary reality. 80 to 90% of churches will never be bigger than 250 people, which leads to reality number two. Virtually all pastors will pastor a small church for at least some time in our ministry. But who's telling our seminary students that, our Bible college students that, our young upcoming pastors that, how many of them are telling them that you are likely to pastor a small church for at least some time in our ministry, most of you will pastor a small church for most of our ministry, and a lot of you will pastor a small church for your entire ministry. How do I know that? Because the best predictor of future events is past events, and that's why it's been for 2,000 years and counting. Now, if that sounds like a lack of faith to you, it did to me until I started redefining success in ministry. That is not a statement of lack of faith. It, it, they, they say, and it's true, the leader's first job is to define reality. This is defining our reality. The first step of faith is to define reality. This is the situation. 
Jesus asked the, the sick man, do you want to be made well? What is your reality right now? We have to define our reality, and this is part of our reality. So if virtually all of us are going to do it for at least some of our ministry, most of us for a lot of our ministry, and some of us for all of our ministry, if we're all going to do it, shouldn't we figure out how to do it well? That's my whole thing. See, I'm, I'm not interested. I don't want churches to be small. I want small churches to be great. You don't have to want churches to be small. That's like wanting Hawaii to be sunny. That's just its natural thing. Right? That's just the way it is. There's the occasional non-sunny day, but you don't really have to want it. It's just going to be that way. It's the same thing with the church. I don't want churches to be small. I want small churches to be great. If we're all going to be doing it, let's figure out how to do it well, which leads to reality number three. You can lead a small church well without settling for less. And that last part of that sentence is really important to understand. We are not talking today. We will not talk today. I will not allow talk in my presence about small churches being settling for less. There is no settling. Settling is sin. As long as there's one person in your community who doesn't know Jesus, settling is sin. So we're not talking about settling. We're talking about utilizing the gifts God has given us in the situation that he's put us to the best possible blessing for the entire kingdom of God. You can lead a small church well without settling for less. What if when Jesus said, I will build my church, what he had in mind was not just a world filled with big box mega churches and huge cathedrals. What if when Jesus said, I will build my church, what he had in mind was a few of those, but a whole bunch of small way stations of faith tucked into every single corner of the globe, multiplying at a frantic pace, which has been what's happened for 2,000 years. What if the, the vast amounts of small churches is not a mistake to be fixed, but part of a strategy that God wants to use? Jesus said he'd build his church, and Jesus knows what he's doing. So it seems to me if he's been doing that way for 2,000 years, maybe there's a purpose behind it. This is not anti-big. I love big churches too. When I hear about 3,000 people worshiping Jesus in the same place, how can that not be anything but celebrated and wonderful? It is. It's wonderful. It's also to be celebrated when you hear about 3,000 people worshiping Jesus across 30 different congregations. Doesn't matter how... The, the, the power of the Holy Spirit is not more concentrated when there are more of us in the room. That's not how, how success in the kingdom of God is counted. They're both great. It's not one or, it's not either or, it's both and. So as I was thinking this through, a few images came to me, and so let me walk you through a couple of them. How many of you have never been in an Ikea store? Raise your hand. Okay. I, you don't have to. I did it now. I've done it, so you don't have to. <laughs> for, the, for the rest of us, we're going to describe something to you that you're going to hardly believe is possible. I discovered this thing that I call Ikea envy. I want you to imagine that the chairman of Starbucks gets together with their top executives this year and says, okay, for the next five years of Starbucks, we've got a plan. We've gone around the world and we've measured all the Ikea stores in the world, and the average Ikea store is 250,000 square feet. Ikea makes the biggest stores on earth. I don't know what it is about this put-it-together-yourself furniture that everybody loves. Other than that, it's cheap, uh, but everybody loves them. And I want you to imagine 
that the chairman of Starbucks says, okay, we've measured all the Ikea, all the Ikea stores and they've got an average of 250,000 square feet. We've measured all of our Starbucks stores and we found out they only have an average of 800 square feet. We need to fix this if Starbucks is going to compete with Ikea. Does that make any sense at all? No, it doesn't, does it? Why? Because they're doing two completely different things. You may not like Ikea. I don't. But they have been successful at what they've done. You may not like Starbucks. But they ha- you cannot argue that they have been successful at what they've done. Two different success stories, two different completely types of different things. So, it's, Ikea is only in a few places. We've got an Ikea near us. And the first time Shelly took me there, we had to buy furniture, whatever. We're going to go to a furniture store. So I had a picture of a regular furniture store in my head. We drive up to Ikea, and I'm like, astronauts can see this from space. (laughs) This is ridiculous. But I thought, I've been in big stores before. I've been in the mall before. I know how this is going to go. We're going to walk in. She's going to go her way. I'm going to go my way. When she finds what she wants and she's ready, she'll text me. I'll meet her at the end and put stuff in the car. Oh, no, not in an Ikea. You're not allowed. They're not allowed. Here's, here's an idea of what it looks like in an Ikea. That's an actual floor map of an Ikea store. Right? Does it look like anything you've seen before? Like maybe a, ra- a rat maze? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, they've even, got, they've even got Swedish meatballs at the end to, to, to let you go, hey, good job, you finished the race. They don't taste good until you've gone through all of that. Trust me, if you ever go to an Ikea for the Swedish meatballs and don't go through the maze, they taste horrible. At the end of the maze, you'll take anything. <laughs> They've even got escape hatches in them now because it's so frustrating. You can now can be in section one and it says, you want to get to section seven right away, here's a shortcut. They actually have them now because it's just, you, you can't just wander. You've got to go through this maze. So here, here's, here's what an actual, take a look at this picture. On the left, what do you see on the floor of the Ikea? An arrow. There are literally arrows on the floor to tell you where to go because otherwise you will get lost in the maze. Now, here's the deal. There are Ikea-sized churches around and there are Starbucks-sized churches around. Too often what we've done from our Starbucks-sized churches is we've only listened to the pastors of Ikea-sized churches that have arrows on the floor precision. Why do they have arrows on the floor precision in the massive churches? Because when you're trying to manage the flow of hundreds or thousands of people on a weekend, if you don't have arrows on the floor precision, everything falls apart really quickly. But I've never walked into a Starbucks and looked for the arrows on the floor. I know where to go. It's pretty obvious. The reason they have arrows on the floor in Ikea is because they want to move you through. Have you ever walked into a Starbucks, or I know in Australia, it's, and you have much better coffee than that here. We get it, understand. But this, I wrote this in my book, so I'm stuck with it. Right? Uh, but I've never walked into a, into a coffee shop. Or have you ever walked into a coffee shop and seen maybe, uh, maybe college students in the corner, and it looks like they're cramming for finals or something? Right? Starbucks, these independent coffee shops, they're not putting arrows on the floor to move people through. They gave them free plugins and Wi-Fi. Because their idea isn't to move them through, their idea is to get them to stick around. So what we're doing often in our smaller churches is we're hearing from the big churches that have to have arrows on the floor precision because you've got another service coming and another one after that, and if you don't hit the end of your song service at exactly this moment, then you're going to miss when it shifts over to the big screen where there's a big head on the screen from a building two miles away, three kilometers away, sorry, forgot where I was. 
right, where somebody else is preaching and they're piping it in on the screen and the timing has to be precise or you miss that. There's nothing wrong with doing church that way. There's nothing wrong with doing church that way. But that's not how most of our churches need to do it. So we hear that and we go, oh, that's what I need to do. No, you don't. You're in a Starbucks-sized church. Stop trying to do it the Ikea way. They, one is right for this, one is right for the other. We don't have to do it that way. It's different. Don't fall for Ikea envy. If you're in a smaller church, do it in a smaller way, which leads to my th- a, a three, point, three points that I, I, are really, really important. We're going to take a while to walk through these three things. Small is not a problem, a virtue, or an excuse. Each of those three words really matter. So let me take a few minutes to walk through each of them. First of all, small is not a problem. When we were trying to get our church to grow bigger and getting frustrated by it, one night, middle of the night, I got on my computer, and if, 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 you, if you don't know how to help your church grow, then you do what we all do, you Google it. I'm not recommending you do it. i just saying that's what I did. So I Googled, why isn't my church growing? And an article came up. Eight reasons some churches don't grow. So I thought, and I looked at the author of it and went, oh, that guy's got a really fast-growing church. He's a really well-known pastor. He's got my answers. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to get the answer. So I read this article called Eight Reasons Some Churches Don't Grow by this famous pastor of this famously growing church, and here are the eight reasons that were listed. Eight reasons some churches don't grow. One, the vision is not clear. Two, the focus is on trying to please everyone. Three, passionless leadership. Four, manufacturing energy. Five, lack of prayer. Six, unwillingness to take risks. Seven, disobedience to scriptures. And eight, selfish attitudes. Yeah. And I read that list and I went, I got to be committing one of those sins. I, but I, because my church isn't growing, and he says this is the problem, but I thought I was praying enough. I didn't think we were trying to manufacture energy. I don't feel selfish. I'm trying to obey scripture. I don't feel passionless. I didn't think I was trying to please everybody, but I got to be doing one of these things. If you ever read a list like that, and you don't see yourself or your church in it, just read something else. That's not helping anybody. It makes me wonder who this pastor thinks they're writing to. Who do they think is up in the middle of the night Googling, please help my church grow? It's not the passionless pastor. It's not the pastor who's unwilling to take risks. It's the hurting pastor. And when a hurting church leader comes to you and says, help, don't slap their hands, put tools in them. This is the wrong approach. That's why I didn't give you the name of the guy who wrote it. I'm not going to put somebody else down, but that's the wrong approach. But I looked at that and thought, I must, I must be doing one of those. It turns out I wasn't. Small is not a problem. Small is not a problem. Don't let anybody tell you that it is, including yourself. Small is not a problem. Secondly, small is not a virtue. Small churches are not better than big churches. I say that a lot. Because, it, I, because I completely believe it, and because the last thing I want to do is cause any further division in the church, we got enough of that. Small churches are not better than big churches. Small churches are not a virtue. I've had it up to here. I'm not going to pay attention anymore to the person who says, you know, the only reason our church is so small is because we're the only one in town preaching the true gospel. 
if you really believe that, you know, then let's sit down and have a talk about your pride problem before you get up to preach on Sunday morning, because that's a bigger issue than the size of your church. We're holy because we're small because we're holy. Oh, stop. There's this meme that goes around in social media, and the picture of this big church packed to the gills, and over it it says, this is what happens when you say what they want to hear. And then there's an empty church, and it says, this is what happens when you preach the truth. Oh, stop. Just stop. This is ridiculous. When you do that, you deny the power of Jesus to draw people unto him. Small is not better than big. It's just not. It's not a virtue. In fact, this is really weird. You know that whole list that I read from the big church pastor about small churches? I've heard every single one of those accusations lobbed from small church pastors to big churches. Oh, those big churches, they're just trying to please everyone. There's no prayer in a big church. They're not following Jesus in a big church. They're just trying to please everyone. They're so selfish, those big churches. Animal behaviorists tell us that when you put monkeys in cages and they get mad at each other, do you know what they do to each other? I'm going to use a very unchurchy word right now. Monkeys throw their poop at each other. And when we do this in the body of Christ, we make the monkeys look good. That's the level that this dialogue is on. Oh, you're so selfish. No, you're selfish. No, you don't have a vision. No, you don't have a vision. Stop! Small is not a virtue. Small is not a problem. Small is not a virtue. Size has nothing to do with your obedience to the call of God in your life. And thirdly, small is not an excuse. There are too many small churches that go, well, when we get to this size, then we'll start doing ministry. When we get to this, then we'll start. Stop. Your size is not an excuse to do right now what Jesus is calling your church to do right now. I've read the New Testament. I'm sure you're glad to hear that. And in my readings through the New Testament, I've looked for this and have yet to find any situation in the New Testament where a command is given to the New Testament church that cannot be done by two or three people who love Jesus, love each other, and get together on a regular basis. Not a single command. There's not a single command that says, but first you need a bigger budget. Or first you need more people in the room. Or first you need a permanent facility. There's not a, it doesn't exist. You need more parking. It's not in the New Testament. Jesus has given your church everything you need right now to do what Jesus wants you to do right now. Stop complaining and get to work. So most of today is going to be filled with wonderful encouragement, but occasionally I'm going to step on a couple toes because some of us need that too. Being small is not an excuse to do poor ministry. We've got to get past that. Help me get back a little bit to some of my story. During that season where I was kind of flaming out, I actually went to our church leadership and I said, I'm leaving for 40 days. And the only reason I gave them 40 days was because I couldn't find an 80 in the Bible. <laughs> this is really sad, but true. I actually looked through scriptures. I did a study of scripture to find somebody had to have taken an 80 or 100-day retreat in here. Because if it's in the Bible, they'll give it to me. It's all 40s, just so you know. <laughs> 40 everywhere. 
So I thought, it's in the Bible, I'll take a 40-day retreat, it sounds holy, but the truth of the matter is, I am burned out and I don't know if I'll come back. And I, wa- I left for 40 days. It was a hard 40 days. Shelly will tell you, during that 40 days, I would not allow us to drive. I could not physically look at the building. And we live really close to the church building. We had to do really weird stuff to get to the store (laughs) so that we didn't drive by the church building. And during that 40 days was when I went to that counselor. And during that 40 days, the Lord really helped to turn my heart and my attitude around. But during that 40 days, I wish I could tell you that I spent the entire 40 days in prayer and fasting. I didn't. I, I was too mad at God. I actually went to a couple friends and I said, I'm too mad at God to talk to him right now. So if you could take my prayer burden for me, I'd appreciate it. And they did, and I will be grateful to them forever. And I went home, and I read stupid books and watched stupid TV. This is not a prescription for health. Nobody go, Carl Vader says, if you're in a bad way as a pastor, go home. No, this is, this is not a prescription. This is closer to a confession of sin. But that's what I did. Now, if you're going to watch stupid TV, there's nothing more stupid than watching reality TV. <laughs> I know. I live where they make them. In fact, I'm married to a real housewife of Orange County. <laughs> and trust me, that show ain't it. Um, and I, as I was watching, the, my two favorite reality TV series during that time were the two restaurant makeover shows. Uh, I don't know if you've got the same ones here. Probably maybe you've got an Aussie version of it here. But in the U.S., it's two British guys telling American restaurants how to fix up their restaurants. I don't know what it is about Americans that we, we'll hear the worst insults, but if it comes with a British accent, we love it. It's like, I want to tell Americans, didn't we fight an entire war so that we wouldn't have to obey people with British accents? There's something wrong with, 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 our, with our brain connectivity here. But I'd watch it. I mean, they're going on. He just called you a donkey and you're smiling. But he said it with a British accent. It sounds so wonderful. We Americans were weird that way. So I would watch them and it's reality TV, so it's not real. I get it. But I also started noticing some patterns in it. And I would notice a couple of patterns like that often, every once in a while they'd come in and they go, I drove by this place three times because I couldn't see your sign. Or I walked in and I stood here for 10 minutes before somebody realized it was here to greet me. Or I came in and the moment I came in, I was overwhelmed by what is that smell? When was the last time this carpet was cleaned? So there were a lot of things that happened regularly. But one thing that never, ever occurred in all the shows I watched, and I watched way too many of them, One thing that never occurred is they never walked into a failing restaurant, looked around the restaurant and said, you know what the restaurant's problem is? This place is too small. They never said that. In fact, sometimes they'd go, you got too much square footage. They would often look at a menu that had 200 items and go, oh, this is way too much. We're going to give you one page of one kind of food with five items and you're going to do them well. Well, we'll get into that in session three, simplifying ministry. There are some of our churches that are trying to do way too much stuff in way too small an environment, and it doesn't work that way. But they never looked around and said, "This, this, this restaurant's not big enough. Because these restaurateurs on reality TV, reality TV has figured out something, and the church is still to catch up. And here's what they've figured out. Bigger fixes nothing. Here's the reality. If you've got an unhealthy small church and you make it bigger, you now have an unhealthy big church. And that's not better, that's worse. 
But if you take an unhealthy small church and you make it healthy, even if it doesn't get bigger, healthy makes it better. So that's what we're all about. I'm not about health as a means to numerical growth. When you do that, then you sacrifice health for the numbers. You've got to be in, in, in this for health, for health's sake, for effectiveness sake, for influence sake, whether or not people are, more people are sitting in front of me on Sunday morning, I have to ask myself, are we having an impact for the good on the kingdom of God? And if so, it doesn't matter if more people are sitting in front of me on Sunday morning. If somebody comes to faith through our church website and they happen to live in another country and can't physically come to our church and they go to a different church, do I look at that and go, oh, I can't believe I just put somebody in somebody else's church? No, we celebrate the growth of the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter who gets the credit. We've got to change our mindset about this. Bigger fixes nothing. If you're looking at your church now and thinking, oh, when we get to this size, then all my problems will go away. We've got so many problems in our church now, right now because we've got so few people. And if only we had more people, we'd have fewer problems. Have you met people? More people, fewer problems. If you really believe more people bring you fewer problems, I just, and you were born on what planet? Never in the history of the world has more people equaled fewer problems. Different problems, but still problems. And well, we got this thing in our head. Once we hit this, we were talking about it. Was it with you or somebody else the other day? People say about making money. And if they ask people who make a certain amount of money and they ask, how much more money would you have to make for you to be truly happy? And no matter how much money you make from poor to rich, they all say somewhere around 10 to 20%, that'll, that'll, that'll do it. And it doesn't matter how much money they're making. Just, uh, there's an, do they have, Sim does the Simpsons cartoon play here? Yeah. One of my favorite lines in The Simpsons is uh, the, the, the old rich guy in the, in the town, Mr. Um, what's it? Yeah, not Smithers. That's the, thank you, Mr. Burns. He's looking out the window and he's seeing it all and in a pensive mood he says, you know, I'd give it all up for just a little more. Right, and that's, a, that's often our attitude in the church, just a little more. It's always this chasing after just a little more. That's what we all want to do. Bigger fixes nothing. If you think your problems are going to be fixed with more, you will be sadly disappointed if you get more. That's not how it works. And all we need to do is see the trail of failed and flamed out pastors that we seem to grow by, grow by weekly, grow by bounds every week. One more failed pastor of this big church, and how did that happen? And I don't know, and I'm not going to cast judgment on any of them, because without the grace of God, there go I by... By, by, for sure. But it doesn't fix anything. Bigger fixes nothing. Well, let me give you some numbers for those of you who are a little numbers-oriented, because there are some that really are important for this. Over one billion people choose to worship Jesus in small churches. According to the Pew Forum, which is probably the most reliable uh, surveying group in the world uh, about church and religion and ethics, they say there are 2.2 billion Christians in the world. So let's round that down to a flat 2 billion. So if you took the 2 billion Christians in the world and you lined them up in a row with people who attend small churches on this end to the people who attend the biggest churches on this end, and then if you drew a line straight down the middle, so you've got 1 billion people attending, this, attending the smallest half of churches and 1 billion people attending the biggest half of churches, that line would be drawn at somewhere around 250 people. 
which means that fully half the Christians in the world, one billion people, choose to worship Jesus in smaller churches. And that's about 90% of the churches because more, you know, fewer churches because they're bigger, more churches because they're smaller over here. Over one billion people worship Jesus in small churches. We have looked at this as a problem to be fixed, but it's not. And let me show you a, a, way, a, a new way to frame this situation. The church needs to embrace something that's called the long tail. The long tail is, is an economic discovery a few years ago, and let me show you how it works. This is called the long tail. On the left, uh, let me see. Oh, there we go. Jumped ahead too far. There we go. On the left, you've got, I didn't label that properly, but we'll label it for you now. This here is actually a picture of how YouTube works and how Amazon works, how Apple works. Let me, let me use YouTube as an example. On the left, on the left, the left axis here is number of views, and over here is number of videos, okay? On the left here, you've got a handful of viral videos by the Taylor Swifts and the Justin Biebers that get billions of views, and that's what everybody pays attention to. But there's only a few of them. And it drops real quick. And what you've got on the right hand over here, way over here, is you've got the YouTube video that you put up so that grandma and grandpa could watch it and only seven people in its entire lifetime will ever see that video, right? And I always wondered, how does YouTube make this access to high quality video that anybody in the world can see to anybody who wants to put it up? This is what they call the long tail. And what they've discovered is, YouTube has as many views in the long tail as it has in the big spike. Amazon works the same way. We have the best-selling books on the left, and we have self-published books over here that only four of your best friends will ever download and never read. But they paid for them. And there are as many books in the long tail, there are as many book sales in the long tail as there are book sales in the big spike. In fact, they did a survey of it. Uh, Barnes & Noble... Uh, this is a few years ago when, when physical bookstores, had, they hadn't all closed yet, pretty much all of them had, but they did a, a survey in America, and Barnes & Noble, the biggest bookseller in America, I think they said had 130,000 titles. The, that 130,000 titles on Amazon only counted for half of Amazon's sales. The rest of their sales was from the books that didn't sell enough to get on a Barnes & Noble shelf. Most of them self-published. So why does Amazon open it up for you to publish a book, self-publish it, nobody says you can't do it, you put it up there and only four people will ever download it. Why? Because when you add all those books up together, they sell as many books in the long tail as they do in the big spike. This is a picture of how it works in the church too. You've got one billion people attending the big churches in the big spike, and you've got one billion Christians attending the, the small churches in the long tail. And what we've done too often over the last 40 years is we've emphasized this and ignored this. And what you've got right now is you've got sickness in both the head and the tail because of that, because that's not how the body of Christ is supposed to work. The body of Christ cannot look at the foot, the hand cannot look at the foot and say, I don't need you. And the foot cannot say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. But that's how we've been operating for 40 years and counting. And it's time for us to, to change that and realize it's not just about the big spike. I'm grateful for the big spike. I'm glad for the big spike. I appreciate the big spike. I'm, I celebrate churches that grow big. But let's not ignore fully half of the body of Christ that's in the long tail. But here's the challenge. 
90% of church leadership conferences and books and blog posts and podcasts are written for people who are in or want to get into the big spike, and less than 10% are written or spoken or presented for those in the long tail. That's what today, today is a long tail conversation. And this long tail is, is almost sinfully under-resourced. Ignored, belittled, and under-resourced. And we need to change that. We need to embrace the long tail. We've got to make a change in the way we look at these things. Let me give you an idea of what's coming up. I mentioned them already, but we'll show it to you again. The next session after this one, it's going to be big churches, small churches. What's the difference? We're going to take a look at the differences between we're going to use this little Venn diagram to show you that, how the churches on the left are different from the right and how they overlap, including a wonderful segment that I like to call, why is my church so weird? Your church is weird. I know your church is weird. Uh, because my church is weird too. And the smaller your church is, the weirder it is. We're going to tell you why that's the case and how not to push against that, but actually lean into that. Um, And then we're going to take a look after lunch at how to discover and use what your church does well, finding and mentoring volunteers in today's and tomorrow's small church. And uh, there's my ad right there for the books. If you want to pick up a book, you can get it today. Shelley will help you with that. And this is something we're really, really celebrating. Just in about two weeks from now, March 3rd, uh, first, our next, my next book comes out. It's called 100 Days to a Healthier Church, and it is exactly what it sounds like. We walk you through a, hundred, a very intensive 100-day process that you can do with your church leaders or maybe even your entire church, depending on your church situation, and how you can do a very intensive 100 days to get your church one step healthier. I do not make any promises in the book. I'm not telling you in the book that if your church is at a negative five, you can go to a positive five in 100 days. That is a promise that nobody can do unless God simply steps in and does something miraculous, which I'm always open to, but you can't write a book about how that happens. But what we can do if we apply these principles is we can move from a negative five to a negative four or from a positive one to a positive two. Your church can get one step healthier in 100 days. So that'll be coming out in March. And uh, we're really excited about that because we're just in the last stages of, of, of before that comes out. Um, but let's take a look at this as a final closing today. Pastoring a small church is not a penalty for doing something wrong. <laughs> it's important to say that because for a lot of us, we feel like that it maybe is, what am I doing wrong? Maybe nothing. Well, not nothing. We're all doing something wrong. But you know what I've discovered? What you're doing wrong in your small church is probably no more than the wrong that's being done by the pastor of the big church, but somehow the things that they do wrong hasn't hindered their numerical growth. It's kind of like if you watch any kind of a sporting event. You can watch, you know, a football game, whatever, and... At the very last second, the last ball goes in the goal and scores and your team wins with like two seconds to go. And then all the commentary is about what? How the team that won did everything right and how the team that lost did everything wrong. But up until three seconds to go, they had done everything equally, right? So what we do is we take the, our idea of success, so our idea of success is a bigger church. So we look at the bigger churches and we ask, what did they do right? And we look at the small churches and the only question we ask is, what did they do wrong? And that's, that's not a, an accurate way to understand how, what happened in the big church because they made a lot of mistakes too. 
And it's not an accurate way to look at the small church because we're doing a lot of things right too. And they may not be doing any more things right. It's just simply God says, I want a big church over here and I want a whole bunch of small ones over here. And, and, and sometimes we're fighting simply against the will of God and the desire that God has for our church. Pastoring a small church is not a penalty for doing something wrong. Back earlier when I said, you know, that the, the pastor who's looking for help or, or, or the pastor who said, you know, it's the small church people have all of these attitudes, selfish attitudes and everything else. I'm going to virtually guarantee that those eight attitudes do not apply to you or to the churches you represent. You know how I can say that those bad attitudes don't represent you? Because you showed up today. Selfish leaders don't show up. Unwilling to take risk leaders don't, don't show up. Prayerless leaders don't show up. You showed up today. That's more than a mustard seed of faith that God can work with to continue to move your church toward healthfulness. So pastoring a small church is not a penalty for doing something wrong. What is it? It's a specialty, and it's worth doing well. For some of us, this change of mindset may be the biggest takeaway that we can have from today and for the rest of our ministry. You're not being punished. You are being placed somewhere where God has put you because he knows you can do it. If pastoring a small church was easy, anybody could do it. But it's, it, it's, it's not a penalty, it's a specialty. And if it's a specialty, and if God has placed us there, let's figure out how to do it well. Even if God has, in our future, explosive growth, even if a bigger church is where he's taking us, right now you're small, so let's figure out right now how to do small well. We've got to change our emphasis. You're not being punished. You are being put in a place by, that God put you because he's got a destiny for you right now. You don't need one more dollar. You don't need one more person. You don't need one more square foot in your facility to do right now what Jesus is calling your church to do right now. Let's be encouraged and let's get to work. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net.